Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Afternoon. Good afternoon. It's so great to practice together with other people, isn't it? <laughs> Yesterday I thought in our study of this text that we would get further, but we ended up having a great discussion which carried on right through dinner and all the way into the night. So uh, that means we have a lot of work to do this afternoon. Um, I encourage you when I'm speaking to go back and forth between looking at the text that I've handed out, but also uh, just to take in the teachings with your whole body. We're so used to studying everything so uh, analytically, you know, It's not the only way to use your mind. (laughs) And um, when I speak and and I'm talking, when you inhale, you can just inhale the whole Dharma with your whole body. So uh, you should go back and forth between these different ways of learning the teachings. In a way, there's something to learn, and in another way, there's nothing to learn. I'd like to begin where we left off, which was uh, the beginning of the next section of the text, which is geared towards mindfulness of the body. And this next section goes into some territory that most of us rarely hear about or learn about, which are called the jhanas in Pali. Uh, In Sanskrit, uh, the word for jhana in Sanskrit is dhyana. Uh, although, in the yoga tradition, we call these the stages of samadhi. So, the first stage of meditation is 
to come back again and again and again to the breath. Inhaling and exhaling. That's what we've been working on. But when you do this over time and you can relax, then concentration starts developing. And then we might fall into, literally, a state of concentration. And sometimes, if you never hear about uh, where these states come from or what can happen in these states, it can be really disorienting for people. And in some traditions, like in the Zen tradition, uh, they never talk about this stuff. So you can be sitting there, and you could be falling into a state like this, and it can kind of freak you out, actually. Um, or if you don't know about it, you might not look for it. And then uh, it can be right there under your nose and you, you're not seeing it. So the Buddha talks about four stages of concentration that he calls the jhanas. Um, and for me, one of the ways to get into the jhanas is that when I start to sit, instead of thinking about what I'm doing while I'm sitting, and I spoke about this a little bit yesterday, I try to come at the sitting through the body rather than through the analytical mind. You know, the same mind that you use for emails is not the same mind you read a novel with. Right? The same attention that you use uh, to label things is not the same uh, attention that you use to meditate. So I intentionally try to set up the posture of sitting so that I'm sensing rather than thinking. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. Listening, feeling, noticing, tasting, touching. It's interesting, when the Buddha talks about meditation, he often uses the word touching. Touching sensations. Touching the breath. So that it's physical. And you can begin by staying with your breathing and trying to follow a whole inhale and a whole exhale. How many people can get through one? <laughs> How many people can get through two breaths? How many people can get through nine? <laughs> yeah, well what happens is as you relax you just start being held by the breath and then you fall into the first jhana and I like the metaphor of falling because it really does feel like that you have to literally fall into it uh, by relaxing and the first jhana in meditation circles is usually called the pleasure of seclusion the pleasure of seclusion for academics, this means that you go off into the cave all by yourself to meditate. But for a practitioner, it doesn't mean this at all. The pleasure of seclusion refers to the fact that the hindrances are kept at bay. So that in your meditation on the breath, for example, you're secluded from the hindrances which I'm going to talk more about. And there are two factors necessary to be 
practicing in the first jhana. The first factor is called uh, initial application, and the second factor is called sustained application. Uh, the way I teach, I usually call it aiming and rubbing. So aiming means you aim for the breath, you stay connected to the breath, and as things start to settle, you make contact with it, and you try to stay there the whole time. Um, sometimes teachers call the first jhana uh, connecting and sustaining. So connecting with the breath and sustaining that. Uh, if that sounds confusing, it's like the bell. So when I ring the bell, the initial contact is bell ringing where there wasn't any bell ringing. But then you see how the mind keeps rubbing the surface area of the sound as it fades. So you want the same thing. To connect with the initial movement of the breath and then to stay with that process all the way through. So it's a training of, of attention. But when you do it in a way that's relaxed, uh, the Buddha says the following is going to happen. Secluded from sensual desire and unskillful states, a monk enters and abides in the first jhana, which is characterized by joy and happiness, born of seclusion, and accompanied with thought and examination. She fills, pervades, saturates, and permeates this body with the joy and happiness born of seclusion, so that no part of her body is not touched by this. So in stillness, the landmarks that we use for understanding our life are not there. right? Because most of the time, the signposts for who we think we are are our reactions, our aversions, our clinging, right? our arguments. But in stillness, those landmarks for who you are are not there. There's a wonderful book I read last year called Transforming Anger by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It's a commentary he gave on chapter 9 of Shantideva. And uh, in it, he has this one moment where he says, when you get concentrated, you don't know what you're doing because you don't recognize yourself. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So this is a so that's why sometimes concentration is disorienting, because as you get quiet, you don't recognize who you are in that state because you're not there. Right. So every time the Buddha gives an instruction in this section, he always gives a metaphor, a simile, to give you a sense of what he means. And the similes I find are so beautiful in this section. Uh, you really get a sense of his personality here, I think, in his precision. The Buddha maybe was the first psychologist uh, ever, I think. When, when you read these texts, you really get a sense of this is somebody who really understands how the mind works. And the Buddha, of course, some of you may know, thought of himself as a physician, not as the founder of a religion. He thought of himself as a doctor. 
So here's what he says. Uh, Monks. It's just as if an able bath attendant or a bath attendant's apprentice had poured bath powder in a metal dish and having sprinkled it with water was to knead it. Moistened, thoroughly moistened inside and out, this bath ball would be saturated with moisture without any oozing out. So I don't know uh, if anyone here has made soap. But uh, in ancient India, the way you made soap is you would take a, a, a powder, which would have herbs in it, all kinds of uh, uh, seeds, nut, and then you would mix it with oil and water, and you would knead it into a dough. And if you get, it's like making pizza, right? <laughs> and if you get the amount of water just right, then the whole ball is damp. So the Buddha is saying here that um, when you're concentrated, you enter a state of rapture, a, a kind of pleasure, and no part of the body is left out. Isn't that beautiful? So there's a, there's, a, there's a rapture in the whole body, and the whole thing is damp with pleasure. And um, one way that I teach this sometimes is when you're meditating, you can sometimes enter states where it just gets quiet, believe it or not, for a few minutes, just quiet. And then you can bring awareness to where in your body that feels pleasurable. And then start keeping your breath in that area and growing the pleasure in a relaxed way. And this is called the first jhana. Uh, most of the time this is very esoteric and people like make it sound really mystical, but this is how it works. Yeah. And some people, they just stay with mindfulness of breathing and they just fall, in, fall into it. First jhana. Then, uh, the important thing is that your ordinary mind, most of the time, is so distracted that it doesn't even know it's distracted. <laughs> so, it can be such a relief for your body to actually experience your mind settled. <laughs> then, Um, is this is this clear so far? Yeah. Pe- people say that this feeling of rapture is even better than an orgasm. It just stays, and it's in your whole body, and it stays in your whole body for uh, up to a long period of time depending on how much you practice. And um, some people, they only get bits and pieces of it. Like um, sometimes people are sitting, and then as they get concentrated, they start feeling really flush in their face. And they're certain it's menopause, you know. Uh, Or they feel tingling in their face. Um, And uh, or their hands are really, really hot. Uh, so there's often these experiences of kind of tingling or warmth 
Um, and that's uh, just symptoms of the first jhana, symptoms of concentration. Um, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to sit completely still. Yeah. Oh, yeah, walking meditation is great. But I think to enter these states, you have to be so, so still that you're barely even breathing. Yeah. And that's why yoga students who say, oh, you know, I practice eight limbs of yoga, but I don't do any meditation. <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 people, the people that promote that are people who don't sit. But really, to look at the nature of mind and to really explore some of these states being discussed, you have to sit really, really, really quiet. Uh, Then the second jhana. The stilling of thought and examination, the monk enters and abides in the second jhana, which is characterized by joy and happiness born of composure, and is accompanied with serene purity and unification of mind, and is without thought and examination. She fills, pervades, saturates, and permeates this body with a joy and happiness born of composure, so that no part of her body is not touched. So, as thinking starts to stop, so does breathing. And the whole system, the whole body-mind system gets really, really quiet. And then what happens is, is um, in the second jhana, is that the the rapture and the joy are more uh, calm. Like the rapture is not such a big deal. It's just there, but it's not such a big deal. And in this state, you develop a real confidence in the practice. So at first the rapture comes and it's like, whoa, this is really amazing. And you can get kind of attached to it. People get attached to it for years. In the second state, it's just pleasure, but it's not such a big deal. Does this make sense? And also what changes is there isn't thought and examination around it. And lastly, it doesn't feel like it's coming from outside of you but feel like it's coming from within the meditation system. And the Buddha describes this really clearly. He says, monks, it's just like a lake that has water welling up from its depths, which has no water sources from the east, south, west, or north, and where the skies did not occasionally shower rain. The cool upwelling body of water will fill, pervade, saturate and permeate the lake with cool water so no part of the entire lake would not be touched with cool water. So there's this joy and rapture that's arising from within the system of meditation. It doesn't seem to be happening from anything outside of you. 
And this is called the second jhana. Then, what happens in this jhana is we get insight into discerning what is and isn't the path. And this is really important. So you start to see that there's something about the rapture that isn't the path. It's really hard to see, but this is very important. How this would translate for everybody here, who, who may or may not have experienced these states, is that, um, and some of you may have heard me call this the adolescent phase of practice, and that's when you have to make a distinction in your spiritual practice between pleasure and the truth. You have to decide, is the goal of the practice to feel good, or is the goal of the practice to be free? And I always think this is the barometer you should use when you decide to study with a teacher or a community or a system. It, are they promising feeling good? <laughs> Or are they promising the, the truth about being in your life? And I'm biased. But nowadays, you know, there's so many meditations and yoga practices where it, their soul is just feeling awesome. And that's great. I mean, we should all feel awesome. But that's not spiritual practice. So, the purpose of the second jhana is not to be attached to the first jhana, in a way, right? So, what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to recognize this pleasure, recognize rapture, and at the same time, to have some discernment so that you're learning not to practice for a certain state. And all of us, when we start meditation, we're practicing to get a certain state. Otherwise, we're inclined to practice for experiences, not just for the sake of practicing. Then the third jhana. With the fading of joy, this is my favorite one, a monk dwells in equanimity, is mindful and comprehending, and experiences pleasure with the body. She enters and abides in the third jhana, equanimous, and mindful she abides in pleasure. Now, this might sound like repetition, but the word that's being used for pleasure is sukha. Now, sukha, which is where you get the word uh, sugar, sweet, there's a joke in academia about this, which is too much sukha causes truth decay. <laughs> There are two factors in the third jhana. One is comfort, and the other is one-pointedness. So there's a sense of comfort in the concentration and a really razor-sharp focus at the same time.
the Buddha says here, monks... Oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say something about sukkah. Sukkah is often um, translated as the opposite of dukkha. Right? So sukkah is uh, sweet and dukkha is pain. But in this context, sukkah means something else. I would translate sukkah as comfort. Because what the third jhana is, is it's a feeling, it's, it's a sense of deep comfort. Like, there's no hindrances, mind's quiet, and you belong. You can, this is your home. So there's a sense of trust, of conf, of shraddha, of confidence, that this is uh, right, that everything is right. And uh, isn't this what all of us, so deeply in our hearts, isn't this what we crave at the bottom? Is just this sense of comfort that home is not separate from where you are. That home is not dependent on anything outside of you. And the Buddha says it really beautifully. He says, it's just like a pool of blue lotuses or a pool of red lotuses or a pool of white lotuses where some of the blue, red, or white lotuses would be born in the water would grow in the water, would be nourished by the water, without ever rising out of the water. The cool water would fill, pervade, saturate, and permeate them from their tips to their roots, so no part of the blue, red, or white lotuses would not be touched with cool water. So picture a very, very still lake, in northern Wisconsin, really close to Canada. And in the lake, there are all these different color lotuses, but they're not blooming like regular lotuses on top of the water. These different color lotuses are blooming inside the water, and they're drenched from top to bottom in coolness. And you might think coolness is not the most exciting temperature, but uh, if you imagine in ancient India the metaphor of, of cooling down or being drenched is, a, is, a, is a, a metaphor that's contextual for um, settling. In the winter here, you might think, oh, cool, you know. But imagine you're in a really hot country and that the meditation is cooling you down all the way through. It's a great... Um, so I would translate sukha here as a feeling of well-being so the third state of concentration is this feeling of well-being that just drenches you all the way through everything's okay I should also uh, just say a word of caution what happens in this state is that the mind, which usually is noticing arising, 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 starts to change and starts noticing within the pleasure, because there's comfort now, so you can look a little deeper, it starts noticing dissolving, 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 and things start happening where suddenly your hands disappear. So you're sitting and you have no body. 
Or like your legs disappear. Or your head disappears. You're just sitting and you have no head. And then your whole body disappears. And there's just, there's just nothing there. And uh, for some people, they get really freaked out by this. Especially people who don't have a teacher. And um, everything's just dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. And it can just scare the hell out of people. Um, so that's just a word of caution. That this all sounds like lotuses and the water and everything. This actually can be really terrifying. Because everything you start to look at, you see, is dissolving. It's dissolving, it's dissolving. And everything just starts happening like that. Like exponentially, just dissolving. Nothing, nothing is a thing. Right? Like we all think impermanence means that everything's changing. That's how we all understand impermanence, right? But in meditation practice, that's not what impermanence is. That's an idea. Like, oh, my body is changing, I'm aging, I shouldn't grasp. But if you follow impermanence to its logical end, impermanence means that there aren't even things. Like as soon as there's something arising, it's changing. So there isn't even a thing arising. It's just changing. Just changing, changing, changing. Changing, changing, changing. Right? Like a phys in physics, they say, oh, well, this floor is moving so fast, faster than my fingers, so I can't get my hand through the floor. But actually, in meditative practice, when you slow down this much, you can just see that everything is just vibrating, changing. And just the, there's nothing there. <laughs> uh, so it can freak people out anyways. So just a word of caution, because it all sounds really like blissy, but it's not. But it would take years to get to that point, right? Yeah, you, you've got to really go for it <laughs> to practice. That's, That's my question. Yeah. When um, when, when we get into the meditation part, we start falling back and you know, let go of all that stress and everything. But um, I tend to. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. And then when I fall back, it's like. I feel like I should have a lot of pillows around me. Otherwise, if I fall that deep, um, I'm unconscious. Right, but this is all in the context of mindfulness in the body. So you never lose your feeling of breathing in the body. So you don't fall back because you're in the posture. There's just no you in the posture. It's just the posture. But it, it seems like I'm alone too. Well, you won't. It, but <laughs> unless you fall asleep, you won't fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. You're upright, energetic. No. Remember, the Buddha said, "I understand breathing in long. I'm breathing in long. Breathing in short. Still understand." It was like um, Nobody does. And that's why I said when you start looking at these states, it's really disorienting because you don't have all the landmarks there for what your life is. <laughs> that's why you shouldn't do this by yourself. But 
And, and some of you might think, sitting here, oh my God, when I sit down, I'm just so neurotic all the time. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but actually, I think that it's good sometimes to know this map because it helps you kind of see where you are a little bit in your practice. And then when things happen, you can say, oh yeah, right. Oh, this is that thing Michael mentioned where I'm really feeling some like good vibes in my chest. Maybe I can work with that a little bit. Or, or my face is tingling. You know? <laughs> Am I, you know, do I have face cancer? (laughs) So would you say that all states of energy, all states of energy moving and fluctuating you feel in your body occur in the first jhana only? Uh, No, they can happen in different ways through all all four jhanas. I have a friend uh, who's a neuroscientist, and um, she uh, uh, has been running a huge study of people who go to meditation retreats and fall apart and really have uh, rough times. She calls them dark night syndrome. And uh, she she has a place in uh, Massachusetts called Cheetah House, which is uh, for ordained monks and nuns uh, who've fallen apart in their practice to come and live with her. And uh, she does really interesting research. So obviously when she started the research, she said, well, of course, all these people who come off retreat who are really depressed or experience psychosis, it's because they've had trauma. And now in the stillness, the trauma from their childhood experience you know, is coming out. Well, then, when they went a little further in the research, it turns out that's not the case, actually. All kinds of people are having these experiences. So um, she started studying, uh, and and she interviewed, at the beginning, 40 of the top meditation teachers and learned that most of them had these kind of experiences. Really dark. Do they have them in the East as well, populations? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yeah, so she didn't know what to do about all this research, you know. She's collecting tons and tons of... So the Dalai Lama heard about this. And so he invited her to come to the Mind Life Institute and present her research. So she presented all this research, a little bit scared. You know, like, are we just a complete disaster, you know, (laughs) meditating in the West? And he had a really interesting response. He said, um, he said, I was just asked to bless a temple in South India. And during the ceremony, the head uh, abbot said, uh, or, or during the ceremony before he was supposed to bless the temple, he said to the abbot, where's your library? And the abbot said, we don't have a library. And the Dalai Lama said, well, I'm not going to bless the temple then. And he didn't bless the temple. That was his response. <laughs> In other words, uh, when you start meditating, you should know that there are maps And uh, we shouldn't get so excited without knowing the maps. Because uh, we have an idealistic version of meditation, which is you sit down, you meditate, you're going to feel peace. Well, you know, for almost everybody that's true. But then, when you keep going, all kinds of other things start happening. And if you don't know the maps, you don't know what to look for. So this was uh, His Holiness's story as a response. It's a very interesting response, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Where's your library? That was the response to the researcher? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 In other words, the people teaching meditation should be know, should know these maps. So, should we go to the fourth jhana? In the fourth jhana, sukha, the sense of comfort falls away and leaves equanimity. So now there's two factors in the jhana. One is one-pointed awareness, right? single-pointed awareness, and the other is equanimity. And this is a very interesting, um, very interesting simile here. The Buddha says, monks, it's just like a person sitting covered all over with a clean cloth so that no part of the body is not touched by the clean cloth. For the longest time I didn't understand this. What on earth does this mean? And then, recently, uh, so uh, my son, um, he likes crawling into bed, you know, like, like not in the morning, but just any time in the day, like if I just like, sit down in the bed or whatever, he'll come running and he'll like climb up. And then, uh, so what I do is I lie on my back and I stick my feet up in the air so that the white sheet is like a tent. Do you remember this when you were a kid? Yeah. So the white sheet is like a tent. And then he sits up inside and he just loves looking at the quality of the light. Because it's different when you have a white sheet that's totally surrounded you so you can't see in at all. And the light that comes in is so soft. And you really feel like you want to stay in there forever. Maybe it's a regression, you know, and it feels like a womb or something. But when you're under the sheet, you feel so protected. You know? Or, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, the way I slept was I would take my sheet and I would wrap it all the way around me, and I didn't like having any air come in. I wanted it to be completely sealed. You know? So the Buddha says that equanimity can be like this too. It's wrapped around your whole heart, around your whole body. And it's soft, like that light that comes in through a white sheet. I could be completely wrong, but that's how I understand this, this part. Um, but there's one part of this that's really important, because it's setting us up for the next section. Which is that sukha's gone. This comfort's gone now. And it's given way to equanimity. But equanimity is not a feeling. Equanimity is an attitude. In other words, there's no longer pleasure. Now there's just equanimity. What that means is, is that now any mind state can come in. But it's met with equanimity. Equally. So that dukkha comes in, pain comes in. So you can be in this state of concentration now, and, and dukkha comes, pain comes. And it may not feel good, but the equanimity is really stable. <coughs> Isn't that interesting? Because the first noble truth of the Buddha is dukkha to fully embrace dukkha, 
to, to open to suffering. And a lot of people feel like, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to fully embrace suffering, but I want it to feel good. <laughs> but to open up to pain is painful. But it's okay. And maybe this is the secret punchline of the whole teaching, which is that you can experience pain and suffering, and it's okay. And maybe there isn't anything wrong with suffering. Maybe the whole idea that we're practicing to overcome suffering was misguided and was just a fantasy that we needed to get into the practice. And then we get into the practice and we realize you can't overcome suffering. But you can be okay with it. But you can experience it with equanimity. Michael, what's your definition of that word, equanimity? Well, what's your definition of the word? Well, um, well, it seems to say equal. Yeah. So to, yeah. Um, if all those mind states coming in are accepted with the same equal, pleasure is no more yeah. um, desirable than suffering coming in. Yeah. So They're met with the same face. So it's a kind of, it's an attitude of evenness. Yeah. Right? It's not being numb. It's not being no. like cardboard. Right. But it's an attitude where you can meet what's showing up completely. Yeah. With your whole body. Yeah. So maybe you could translate it as fearlessness. That's a good word. I say this, I think this is probably the advice I give people more than any advice. When people come and meet me and tell me about stuff going on in their life. And I feel like the thing I always say is, you can sit in that without fear. Like you can get way closer to what scares you. Way closer. Until you're not there anymore. And it's just what's happening. I do think that's the trick though, is to identify I am not the pain. Yeah. You know, I can be with pain without yeah. being the pain. Uh huh. That's just a, a trick to the Yeah. Pain. So, you know, I've done a fair amount of work of working with people with pain. And, you know, I always come in, I teach these teachings. We're going to, the whole day tomorrow in Green Bay is going to be on pain. And then people always say, oh, you're just young and you feel good, you don't know what you're talking about. You know. <laughs> But then I, you know, we keep plugging away. Because you tell people with pain that the root is into the pain. And they freak out. And they're like, well, I'm already feeling that. Well, most people, when they feel pain, they're just trying so hard to run away from pain. And the thing is, is that medications don't work. I mean, yeah, pharmaceuticals are great. They've come a long way. But when you're with people who have terminal pain, the medications don't get rid of the pain completely. They certainly help. It's so great that they help. Secondly, the medications don't help with the dukkha. So the process with working with pain, and this might sound a little weird because it's the opposite of how we think about pain, is to get more intimate with the pain. 
until there's just pain. And then something really interesting happens, is there's pain, but it's not happening to you. So it's a little different than what you're saying, because you're not saying, oh, it's not my pain. You're just saying, oh, it's pain, it's pain, it's pain, you're breathing pain, breathing pain. And then there's just pain, but it's not happening to you. And then usually when you feel that, it changes. It's really interesting. It changes. And then there's boredom. Or like hungry for dinner. or It changes. And it's not just physical pain. Like You can't separate physical and emotional pain. You lose somebody that you love. Has anybody here lost somebody that you have? Of course. Yeah. You have a relationship, it changes. Or uh, somebody dies. And then um, you think you're grieving, but really there can be so much distraction. Get back on the dating service. But actually, when you're grieving, the trick is to get closer, closer to your pain. Until there's just pain there, and it's so bad. Until it's so bad that it's fine. Right in the middle of the pain, it's fine. And if I just say this, you think, oh, you're crazy. But anybody who's tried this, when you're really feeling intense emotion, like, just become the emotion. Just go right into it with your breathing, without fear. And you'll see that you can do samadhi, pain samadhi. You can do loneliness samadhi. You can do grief and separation samadhi. But if you connect the pain to an object, the object starts feeding the pain. So if you connect your pain to the loss of Joe, oh, Joe, you know, I can't believe he left me. That's why I'm feeling all this pain. Then the Joe story is feeding the pain and keeping you outside of it. So that's why mainly you want to think of equanimity as a kind of fearlessness. Because what it does is it changes your attitude. So that when the discomfort comes up, your attitude towards it is warmer. So I'm just curious, tomorrow and Green Day, are you guys going to be taking that at all? I I work in healthcare and specializing in palliative care. Yeah, we're going to do a cool thing tomorrow in Green Bay. Is in the afternoon, I wrote out um, a meditation on working with pain. It's really, really long. I'm not going to be there though. Oh yeah, I'm just telling you. Okay. I'll just, I'm just telling you what we're going to do. Yeah. Okay. And then we're going to go paragraph by paragraph. And we're going to role play. And we're going to actually, one person is going to be in pain. 
and the other person is going to learn how to guide them in a meditation to really get closer and closer and closer to their pain. Isn't that exciting? That's what we're going to do. Yeah. We didn't advertise it this way because <laughs> I don't know if anybody would come. Because I worked, I've, I've done so much work with clinicians, you know, and they love like actually having scripts to practice. They love role play. So um, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and we'll record it. Yeah. We'll record people as an agony. Yeah. We'll record it. People in agony. Um, so we've gotten as far as I want to go before we have a break. So uh, are there any questions before we take a break? Yes. And, and your hand was up also. I, I didn't. Do you want to go first? Because your hand was up. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about uh, this notion of attitude. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. To me, that, that translates into behavior, so it becomes a way of a way of relating. Yeah. In this case, the pain that's arising. Yeah. Uh, skillfully, more over time. Yeah. I mean, that's how I think yeah, about it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So if you want to talk about it at a real micro level, in meditation practice, whenever you have a little bit of aversion, we talked about this with Sarah yesterday, whenever you have a little bit of aversion, the first thing you should check is your attitude. Am I trying to get rid of this? Do I want this not to be here? The first thing that you check is your attitude. And this is where this dovetails a little bit with the medical system, right? Because, you know, in medicine, our attitude is get rid of the pain as fast as possible to get back to work, get back to your family, get back to your life. But there's a piece missing there. This is your life. This is your life. Yeah. It's just possible that the pain is your friend. Is is your friend. Yeah, the pain is your friend. And also what like what happens when we don't allow ourselves to really feel pain? Like, you know, First Nations people all over the world, in this country, in Canada, everywhere you go, First Nations people are sick because they're separate from the land, from uh, a community that has a relationship with the natural world. And so there's so much pain because of that. And for the past you know, uh, century, we've been able to go around saying, Oh, they're so sick. But now we're so sick also because we're so separate from the earth that we're killing. It's like we're having a once in a lifetime blowout of carbon. A great deal. So we're really getting sick. We're really getting sick. And if we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain of that, then we're just going to keep going around in circles. So in that respect, I think it's so interesting to connect, as you've just done, your attitude and your behavior. Yeah, to me that's critical. Yeah. The whole idea of attitude. Yeah. The opening to that attitude. Yeah. 
slowly, yeah. progressively over time. I remember when the Occupy movement was happening. Some of you know I was really involved in the Occupy movement in New York. And my father, who's the most apolitical person ever, he said to me, you know, I'm following the Occupy movement. And when I hear people talk, I, it's, the, it's the truest thing I've ever heard. This is one of the interesting things about the Occupy movement, is they named inequality. And maybe the greatest success of the Occupy movement is that we can all talk about, like, people talk about inequality now. In the media, people talk about inequality. But then he said, but actually, the more that I hear that what they're saying is true, the more it terrifies me completely. So I don't support it. (laughs) But he was so honest. He said that the, the Occupy movement, he has an aversion to it. And when he examined it, the whole idea of what you would have to do to work through economic inequality scared him so much because it would totally screw up his lifestyle. And he was really honest about that. So this is, this is really important. So that's the, the macro, macro side. Mm-hmm. Yes? You make a distinction between uh, pain and suffering. Um, I don't know. Sometimes. The word, the word here is dukkha. And there isn't an English equivalent. Suffering has got so much baggage in our culture, the word suffering, you know. So dukkha means stress, pain, suffering, the experience of lack, the inability to be content, and uh, kind of inadequacy. All those things. There is not a word in English. So that's why I like the word dukkha. And the word dukkha, etymologically, Uh, It predates the Buddha. And it comes from two words. It's a compound word. A du, which means dirty. And ka, which is from the root akash. The word akash or akasha. Does anybody know what that word is? Akasha. Space. So du, ka, literally means a dirty space. And it was first used as a medical term to talk about a wound that a wound was the opening up of a space that had the potential of infection. It's a dirty space. And it was also used to describe the hub of an axle before there were ball bearings. Everybody know what ball bearings are? Kids who skateboard? Okay. So imagine what happens in a wheel if you don't have ball bearings. What happens? Yeah, it it wears out, it's dirty, it's wobbly. That hub that's worn out, that's dukkha. It's a dirty space, you see? So you know the feeling in your life when you're riding down a hill and you have no ball bearings? (laughs) Right? This idea of distinction between, on the one hand, Suffering and pain on the other. Yeah. Sometimes 
folks that I'm working with, I make the distinction that pain is a given, suffering is perhaps optional. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I used to say that. <laughs> That's how I learned the Dharma. I learned, my teachers always said, there's pain and then there's dukkha. That's how I learned. There's pain and then suffering is what you add to it. And if you go to any Buddhist center, they'll say that the goal of practice is the end of suffering. Okay? But I don't think that anymore. I, 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 I've totally changed my mind about this. Because I don't think that's true. Usually what they say is the first truth is that there's suffering. Then they say craving causes suffering. And, if, and then you can experience the cessation of suffering. And then there's a path to do this. Okay? But I don't buy it. I think that it works a different way. That there is suffering... We embrace suffering. Okay? This is clear. In other words, that suffering is built into life and that we need to experience it. Okay? Second, that there's craving. The problem with craving is not that it creates suffering, because there's suffering that occurs independent of craving. The problem with craving is not that it creates suffering. The problem with craving is that it shuts down the path. When craving is present, you can't see the path. You see? So the logic needs to go boom, 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 boom. Not like mm-hmm. da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you understand what mm-hmm. I, mean? I mean? Is that confusing? Mm-hmm. I agree. Because... Not all of our suffering is caused by craving. It's just not. There's no doubt that psychologically craving causes suffering. There's no doubt. But that's not where all our suffering comes from. And it's interesting because when the Buddha defines what suffering is, he doesn't define it in terms of craving. He says that birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, not getting what you want is suffering. And fifth, being separated from what you love is suffering. He doesn't say anything about craving. But in the way the Dharma is interpreted, we're always told suffering is from craving. In other words, this is the bad news. This is the bad news of this whole thing, is that you're going to suffer. And like yoga students, they just hate this so much. In Santa Monica, it's against the law <laughs> to talk about this. <laughs> so what that means is, if you love somebody, you're going to feel pain. Because it's going to change. And if you really work with your body, you have to learn how to work with your body without identifying with it. Because otherwise, it's going to be really painful when your body cannot perform. 
the way you think it should perform. Hey, I went to all these workshops for all these years with Michael, and now I'm in Madison, and I can't do any of this stuff anymore. <laughs> but actually, if you're listening closely, that's not what I'm teaching. It's just how to get you in the door, because you've got a body, you've got to do something with it. I, I'm sorry if this all sounds kind of down. But, you know, life is really hard. And I feel like the core of this practice is to be able to love really deeply with your whole body. And then to fall down. And then to get back up and then love even more deeply without being jaded and without being cynical and without carrying around resentment. And then, to get hurt again. And then to get back up. And then to love even harder. With more of you. Because now there's more of you. Because you've suffered a lot. So that loving someone's riskier. It's way riskier. When you're 20, you can have a one-night stand, you know. You heard about these things? <laughs> It's like kind of simple, you know? You can like, you know, get together with somebody. But, you know, when you're 40 or when you're 50, it's not so simple anymore. It's so much risk, it's so much more risk. Because you're so much more bruised and you're so much wiser because of it. Yeah, sure. uh, so then when you want to love somebody, it's way riskier. But actually, uh, it's way deeper because there's not so much anxiety in it. <laughs> because you know that it's going to really hurt. <laughs> so that's why I'll come back to what I said yesterday. Don't make things worse. People are going to screw up. Your relationships are going to fall apart. Nobody's going to do things the way you want them to. Your body is not going to do what you want. And also, you didn't get the body you wanted. <laughs> so, don't make it worse. It's already so bad. <laughs> so thank you very much. Why don't we have a little uh, break? Have a glass of wine, a cigar. Because <laughs> it's so intense, you know. Have a glass of wine. And then um, we'll keep going.